That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is a bond investing masterclass bonus episode. Earlier this year, we released an episode that has been quite popular. Episode 418, it was a bond investing masterclass, what you need to know to confidently invest in bonds. And we covered many aspects of bond investing, but clearly we didn't cover everything. This week we have a family wedding, so we don't have a regular episode of the podcast, but we thought it would be helpful to build off that bond investing masterclass by sharing three segments of recent Money for the Rest of Us Plus episodes on aspects of bond investing. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a weekly premium podcast episode for members of our Money for the Rest of Us Plus community. And it's typically we answer questions that Plus members have on various aspects of investing. The, the purpose of Plus membership is to help individual investors save time and gain confidence investing by cutting through the market noise. To help our members build a successful, grounded decision-making process for their investment portfolios. We'll first share a portion of PLUS episode 444, just a couple of weeks ago, where we looked at the different types of yield measurements for bonds, including the trailing 12-month yield, the yield to maturity, and the SEC yield. And we'll discuss some of the challenges in the current rising interest rate environment in measuring bond yields. Next, we'll take a look at a segment from PLUS episode 445, which was released last week where we take a deeper dive on something I've mentioned numerous times, that the best estimate of a bond, bond fund, or ETF's return is its starting yield to maturity. We'll look at how long you need to own a fund or ETF to be able to earn that expected return if interest rates rise or fall, and, and better understand the math of why that starting yield to maturity is so powerful in estimating a bond fund or ETF's return. Finally, we'll share a portion of Plus Episode 437 where we look at an interesting bond type that yields more than U.S. Treasury bonds, but has never defaulted and have the implicit guarantee of the U.S. government. The bonds are issued by the Federal Home Loan Bank, or FHLB. We'll look at what the FHLB is and why its bonds have done so well. We hope you enjoy this bonus bond investing masterclass. Let's turn to a discussion of yields for bond funds and ETFs. And this can be a, a confusing topic because there's different ways to measure. I appreciate Greg, longtime member of our site, in the forum post listed an article, which I'll link to in the show notes here, about the, the truth about yield by Jason Bove and Mark Willauer. They work with JP Morgan or work at JP Morgan Asset Management. This came out early this year, and they pointed out a challenge in the current rate environment with the SEC yield compared to the yield to, to maturity, and, and I'll define those in this discussion. The first, though, is the trailing 12-month yield. This is the yield an investor would receive 
if they held a bond fund or ETF over the last 12 months. And so they received the dividend each month that came from the interest income on the bonds. And so that would be the yield they would receive. Now, that's a backward-looking measure, so not terribly useful, particularly in an environment where interest rates are increasing. And so the forward expected yield will be higher than looking backwards in time. And so that's a simple measure is is if you held the bond fund from the last year, what was the income you received? And that could differ from the forward income based on what interest rates are doing. The yield to maturity is, and this is from the JP Morgan article, is the total return anticipated on a portfolio of bonds, assuming the bonds are held to maturity. That is similar to the definition I've given over the years. That total return, that expected return, of holding the bonds to maturity, that yield to maturity is is the best estimate uh, of bond returns once you back out the fee, what J.P. Morgan calls the net yield to maturity. Now, that total return calculation for, for yield to maturity is an internal rate of return calculation. It essentially is figuring out the discount rate so that the, the present value of those future interest cash flows equals the price uh, of the bond or on a weighted average basis, the, the price of the ETF, the net asset value of the ETF. And so you have all these cash flows out into the future, interest being received, and then it estimates, well, what discount rate does it take for these to bring these future cash flows into the present so that the value, present value of those cash flows equals the price of the bond? And that's just the math of bond investing. And the yield to maturity, net of fees is, is really probably the best measure of long-term bond funds. In fact, J.P. Morgan, in that paper, they did a study similar to what I've discussed in the past, where they looked at the starting yield to maturity of the Bloomberg Aggregate Index. This is U.S. bonds. And then they, so they have the starting yield to maturity. And then there's a graph that shows what was the six-year annualized return of the index compared to the starting yield to maturity. And it was very close. And that's why we use the yield to maturity as our estimate for, for bonds in the asset allocation assumptions on the website. Now, let's turn to the SEC yield. The SEC yield is a calculation introduced by the SEC in 1988 to sort of standardize the yields being shown for bond funds and later for ETFs. This is calculated using the daily yield to maturity over the last 30 days for government and corporate bond funds. And so it effectively is a similar yield to maturity calculation, but it backs out the fees. And so if it's a government bond fund and we look at the SEC yield compared to the yield to maturity, it's typically very close, the difference just being the expense ratio on the fund. However, and, and this I didn't realize, and, and surprisingly, we talk about this standardized yield calculation, I've never seen it. I've, I've searched. I've never been able to find this calculation. And that's it, been a source of frustration. But apparently for securitized bonds, so asset-backed securities or mortgage-backed securities where a package of debt instruments, be it credit card receivables, car loan receivables, or mortgage receivables, they're packaged into a bond and sold into the marketplace. For calculating the SEC yield, they use the, the purchase price, and then they adjust it for payments. But 
it's not the market price. And I, I never realized that. And what that means is in an environment where interest rates are increasing and the value of bonds are falling, that the SEC yield understates the actual yield on the fund. It, it, basically, there ends up being a bigger gap between the yield to maturity, which is higher than the SEC yield. Intuitively, that makes sense because as interest rates go up, the value of the bonds go down. And then if we're going to calculate the internal rate of return, that discount rate to bring those future cash flows into the present, and we're trying to figure out the discount rates or those future cash flows equal the current price, if that price is fallen, then that discount rate will be higher. The yield to maturity will be higher, which is that's the way the math is. But if we're using stale prices, the SEC yield will not be higher. And they give some examples, JP Morgan in their paper, showing the yield to maturity of some of their bond funds. And the more securitized securities, asset-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities that the bond fund holds, the bigger the gap. In this environment, where we've seen a big move up in rates, and that's why we're seeing this discrepancy. So for example, their core bond fund has a net yield to maturity of 5.3%, but the SEC yields 3.9%. Their short duration bond fund has a yield to maturity of 5.8%, and the SEC yield is 3.4%. Bottom line is, if we can get the yield to maturity for a bond fund from the bond fund or ETF's website, that's the best measure of the expected return of holding the bonds for six, seven, 10 year period. Some bond families don't share the yield to maturity. Double line, for example, they just show the SEC yield. They don't show the, the yield to maturity. And depending on how many securitized bonds they have, that SEC yield potentially is understating the actual potential return for the bond fund. Let's turn to estimating bond returns. Last week, we, in plus episode 444, we discussed some challenges with the SEC yield, which is a calculation in the U.S. that is generally based on yield to maturity. But there's some challenges when interest rates are rising in terms of the accuracy of the SEC yield relative to the yield to maturity. And, and I believe in that episode, at some point, I mentioned that these yields, yield to maturity, SEC yield, can be used to estimate the returns of a bond fund or ETF. I, I certainly have discussed it in numerous times on the podcast, on plus episodes and educational videos, because it's a rule of thumb that is very effective. Well, we had a question from a member that mention this rule. He writes, if I purchase a bond or a TIPS or a bullet share ETF, a bullet share ETF is an ETF that has a set maturity date, I avoid principal risk and subject myself just to interest rate risk over the chosen period. By principal risk, he's discussing that the value of that individual bond can fluctuate during the holding period as interest rates change. But at the end, he would receive the principal back, whatever he invested. And so there is no risk to the actual principal of the bond over the holding period. There is interest rate risk, though, because the interest rates could go up or they could go down. And let's say they go down and then they're now lower than the initial yield on the bond. Well, that investor has to reinvest that interest 
in something, and then the, the rates are lower. So that by interest rate risk, at least my interpretation of what it's referring to is just the risk of differing yields as we reinvest the cash flow we receive. Member continues, I would like to better understand the principal risk involved in holding a bond fund of, let's say, a seven years average maturity, or let's say a seven-year duration. It's a more dynamic investment because it's a fund, there's moving parts, there's underlying holdings that are maturing, new holdings are being added, new shareholders are coming into the fund, so perhaps additional bonds are being purchased. The challenge he's having is this concept of, which I've said, the best expectation of return for a bond funder ETF, if held for 7 to 10 years, is its starting yield to maturity. And that can be a, a difficult concept to grasp because the portfolio could be totally different. So how is it that the returns, both in terms of the principal and income return, can approximate that yield to maturity? Now, one of the caveats that I have said is I typically have said seven to 10 years, but I was assuming a particular bond fund, an intermediate bond fund like the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF. And the initial research that we did on this was at my former investment advisory firm. And we used, I think we used the Bloomberg Barclays Aggregate Bond Index for this study. The duration at the time would have been about five years. And so our analysis was sort of focused on that seven to 10 year time horizon. The, the academic research doesn't focus on years. It, it focuses on the multiple of the duration. So is the holding period two times the duration of the fund? So in the case of BND now, it would be over 12 years. Or maybe it's one and a half times the duration, and so a nine-year holding period. These rules of thumb are simplification. They're, they're backed by math, in this case, some calculus, complex calculus, based on my understanding of calculus. But let's keep in mind, the duration is the interest rate sensitivity of the fund. The outcome, whether the actual holding period return equals the starting yield to, to maturity, it's impacted by whether interest rates increased, they fell, or stayed the same. If interest rates stayed the same, that's when this rule of thumb is most accurate. But in most cases, it doesn't stay the same, and so we'll look at some scenarios there. Why does this rule of thumb work? If interest rates increase, the net asset value of the ETF or fund will fall because the underlying bonds that the ETF or fund holds falls in price. As a reminder, the net asset value is the value of all the underlying holdings, in this case bond holdings, divided by the shares outstanding. So we're looking at the net asset value per share, and that will fall as interest rates rise. We won't get into why that's the case. I've discussed it earlier, such as in the, the bond market masterclass. Suffice to say, all bonds of similar credit quality and maturity should have very close to the same yield, yield to maturity, even though they have different coupon rates. And so the prices have to fluctuate in order to keep the yields of similar bonds the same. So with the, those bond funds and ETFs, you know, some of those bonds will mature, others will be sold, additional bonds might be added. But if interest rates have gone up, those new bonds in the portfolio, they're earning higher yields. And the existing bonds are earning a higher yield. So the, the composition of the fund changes. But ultimately, the bonds 
are generating a higher income since interest rates increase, and that higher income recoups the losses to the net asset value over time. If a sufficient amount of time passes, it's the higher income that recoups the principal losses due to the rising interest rates. And as time passes, we basically get a total annualized holding period return that approximates the yield to maturity. Now, if interest rates fall and the, the value of those bonds go up, the net asset value increases, then all the reinvestment and new bonds added to the portfolio have a lower yield. And so that pulls down and effectively makes the overall return of the fund equal the starting yield to, to maturity. I'll link to a paper. If you're really good at calculus, you can go through all the math for why that works. It makes sense intuitively to me, understanding bond math, but you go through the calculus, it is challenging. Now, there was a table in this paper and it went through different scenarios. What about a a three-year bond ETF or an ETF of a fund or portfolio, basically a five-year average maturity, 75-month, 10-year, 20-year, and a a corporate, long-term corporate. And then it looked at what was the average error difference between the actual annualized return and the starting yield to, the, to maturity. And then it looked at it over, well, what, what was that average error if the fund was held for two times the duration? So they went from three quarters of the, of the duration to two and a half times duration. And again, I'll link to the paper and you can, the, the line that I'm focused on is a line called average FE. So that's the average error. And let's just focus on a 10-year bond portfolio. The average error was about 17 basis points if it was held for two times the duration. If it was held for 1.7 times duration, it was three basis points. It only got a larger error if it was held for just 1.25 the duration. Let's say BND with a six-year duration, that would basically be holding it for just over a six-year period. If it was held for three quarters of the duration, it was an average error of 1.4%. If we held it for two and a half times the duration, the error was 0.68%. Now, sometimes it was positive, sometimes it was negative, but by and large, it doesn't have to be exactly two times the duration, anywhere generally from one and a half to just about two times duration, the holding period. The starting yield to maturity does a very good job approximating the return. Again, it depends. They, they find that when interest rates go up significantly, that the actual return was slightly lower than the starting yield to maturity, that it didn't quite recoup all those losses over the time frame. And that has to do with basically the calculus, the, the concavity. There's a number of different factors. So it is complicated, but that's why we use rules of thumb. But they also found that when interest rates fell, that the actual return was a little higher than the starting yield to maturity. But it's close. It's, it's much closer than using when we estimate stock returns, because with stock returns, we have the the dividend yield, the earnings growth, but then there's that big impact potentially of a change in valuation and currency. So I'm content with the fact that it's pretty accurate, not exactly, 
but it's pretty accurate. And it was fairly accurate even for the, the long-term corporate bond portfolio with basically an average error of, uh, looks like, 0.4% to 0.5% negative. So, but sometimes it was even closer. But if it's within a half a percent, over a 7, 10, maybe even 12-year period, or in this case, a multiple of one and a half to two times the duration of the fund, that's pretty good. And, and I'm happy about that. I'll include the link in the show notes. Hopefully that explains it. It, it is complicated. But bottom line is, it's just the fact that even though the underlying portfolio is changing and is different bonds, those bonds are either yielding more if interest rates increased or they're yielding less if interest rates fell. And that income will impact the total return and any potential losses or gains from to the principal because of fluctuating interest rates. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Let's take a look at FHLB. This is a private public agency established in 1932 at a time where there was a fear that banks wouldn't have the capital to lend on home mortgages. The agency has been in business for 90 years, and it's had a little bit of I wouldn't call it mission creep, but just the purpose of why it was established isn't really there anymore because most mortgages are bought by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and many mortgages are issued by non-banks such as Rocket Mortgage. The banks, which have access to the federal home loan banks, they don't access it to help with mortgage lending. In many ways, 
the FHLB has been the first line of liquidity for banks. At present, the the overall size of FHLB is about $1.5 trillion, and there are 11 regional FHLB banks around the U.S. The owners of these banks, they're privately owned, and it's mostly the shareholders are are banks, and the FHLB is set up to, to generate a profit. And because the FHLB is essentially private, It doesn't show up as a line item, for example, on the U.S. government budget, and it's not something that Congress really gets involved in terms of allocating capital because it stands on its own. What the FHLB does have is the implied guarantee that their debt, or if the FHLB got into trouble, that the U.S. government would step in and make sure that the debt holders were protected. That's what we saw with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in 2008, other government agencies that had kind of this implied guarantee and and the implied guarantee worked when the government took them over. Now, the shareholders lost out, the shareholders of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but the bonds that they issued and the agency debt, those bonds weren't defaulted on. Ryan Donovan, the CEO of the Council of Federal Home Loan Banks, said the implied guarantee is not something that's conveyed by the government. It's something the market perceives that we're a safe place, that our debt that we issue is solid. But there is the implied guarantee, even though it isn't explicit, but this was a government agency set up by the U.S. government. There's some debate as to what that implied guarantee is worth in terms of the ability of the FHLB to borrow money at favorable interest rates. If we look at the yields on FHLB bonds, they're generally about a percent higher to even 1.5% higher than comparable U.S. treasuries. And so there is a higher yield, but it's probably potentially, if there wasn't that implied guarantee, that the yields would be even higher. I mentioned that FHLB has evolved, and what we see is that banks borrow from the FHLB because if they get into trouble, they don't want to borrow from the, F- the Federal Reserve directly if they can avoid it because of some of the stigma, the, the perception that they're running into troubles, whereas they're able to borrow from the FHLB. So Silic- Silicon Valley Bank, for example, was a, a big borrower right before they collapsed. The FHLB requires collateral from the banks, and the FHLB has what's called a super lien on any money they lend. So they get the collateral, but if the bank collapses, the FHLB is first in line to be repaid, typically by the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. As a result, the FHLB has, has never lost money on any of its loans that, that I could find or am aware of. And as a result, their debt that they issue, the bonds they issue, are really secure because the FHLB has not defaulted on its bonds. It's in a, it's in a great position. It gets this implied guarantee from the government, super lean position when lending to banks. And because of that, there's not a ton of due diligence that the FHLB does on banks. So it's really easy for a bank to borrow 
from the FHLB. And, and the 11 regional banks, in some regards, compete with each other to lend to, to banks. Granted, they get collateral, but if you can lend money and get collateral for the amount that you lent, solid collateral like government bonds, and you are first in line if the bank goes under, pretty good deal. And as a result, it's potentially a pretty good deal for us as investors to buy FHLB bonds. The FHLB is overseen by the Federal Housing Finance Agency. That agency, as directed by Sandra Thompson, has been looking at the FHLB's mission. Of the $1.5 trillion that it has, several hundred million dollars, about $300 million or more, goes toward mortgage programs. So it's not like the, the FHLB ignores its mandate. It's just that it's sort of morphed. Now, while it, it is involved in mortgage programs, banks don't need the FHLB to assist with mortgages. What they use it for is liquidity. So when deposits were fleeing, such as from Charles Schwab Bank, Schwab took some of its bond holdings that it didn't want to sell at a loss. It moved them to held to maturity bonds. And then it's been borrowing from the FHLB as a source of liquidity to pay out depositors, that those depositors that wanted to pull their money. And other banks have been doing the same thing. And there's, there's nothing really wrong with this. It's just here's a 90-year-old agency that is now much more involved in providing liquidity to banks than it is in assisting with mortgages. We've had some discussions in the member forums in the past about FHLB bonds. They can be complicated because the FHLB is known for issuing callable bonds, what they call optional principal redemption bonds. They are mostly what are known as Bermudan-style bonds, that they have specific call dates, typically quarterly, and then they can call the bonds. A small percentage are European callables with just a single call date, but they have callable bonds, which is the bulk of the bonds. They have some non-callable bonds, outstanding. And then they have what are known as amortizing issues, which are a type of callable bond. But instead of that call coming at the discretion of the FHLB banks, there's an amortization schedule where principal is redeemed based on some formula or index. A callable bond is a bond that can be redeemed early by the issuer. If you own a callable bond, maybe it has an attractive yield and the issuer decides that it doesn't want that bond outstanding anymore. So it will send back the principal balance that's owed, any accrued interest, and the bond will be redeemed early. And as a bondholder, you have no control over that. If, if it's a callable bond, it can be redeemed early by the issuer. And FHLB has been known for issuing mostly callable bonds. That's why when analyzing them, there's typically a yield calculation called yield to worst, and it's an estimate of what the yield to maturity would be if the bond was redeemed early or called. When you buy an FHLB bond, it's really important to read the documentation. There's a a link that I'll include in the show notes where you can put the QCIP number for a specific bond from HFLB and get the bond covenants and the documentation to understand how it works. And, and that's really important for these amortizing bonds, whereas a typical FHLB bond, it will 
at maturity, it will pay back the principal. In the meantime, it pays interest, but there's always the chance it can be called. Now, the FHLB won't call a bond unless they have an economic incentive to do so. So I, I did look, for example, at the bonds that are eligible to be called in the next five days, and it showed what percentage were being called, and none of them were because all of them had coupon payments of less than 2%. The most recent three-year bond, for example, that FHLB issued had a yield to maturity of 5.75%. In fact, its coupon was 5.75%. So why issue debt at at 5.75% to call a bond that's paying 2% coupon, the interest rates? And so the bond to be called if the market interest rates have fallen below the coupon rate on the specific bond. And that's, we don't know what interest rates you're going to do, but we have to recognize there's that possibility. You can buy these bonds from your broker, Schwab, Fidelity, or others, but read the documentation and understand the potential for the bond to be called if market interest rates fall. And so one thing that could be done is to to purchase bonds that have lower coupons, but because they're less likely to be called than bonds that have higher coupons, then Generally, the the yield to maturity often on those bonds will be lower. And so you kind of have to look. But ultimately, these these bonds are attractive because they do have higher yields than comparable U.S. treasuries. But they're also very low risk because of the implied guaranteed from the federal government and because of the activity of the FHLB with their super lien status when making loans and the collateral. So this is just another option if you're interested in buying individual bonds, FHLB agency bonds, make sure you read the the bond prospectus covenants, bond indenture, I think is the, the official term before buying an issue so you understand specifically what you're buying. Hopefully you've enjoyed these three segments from Plus episodes on bond investing. You can get more information on Plus membership, what's all included at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. We've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.